Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. The thing that I have, and now that I'm older, I don't care that it's the only thing I have. Like, I'm totally cool with not having a vacuum, I think. <laughs> it's been two weeks. Probably in another week I'll be very sad. But it's okay as long as I remember books. And I always remember some weird scene out of something. And anyway, I wanted to say that. And so I've spent 15 years working on the characters in this book. And I just thought I'd say a couple of small things about that. Because what stayed with me about Sula and about Go Tell on the Mountain and a lot of other books, it was usually an image. Isn't that what stays with you? It's this strange image and it's this, maybe it's a whole paragraph or a whole scene, but sometimes it can just be one line, right? And you just, ne and that's what we want to write. I mean, we always want to write something that stays like that, and that's the challenge. So I thought I would just say to you uh, briefly that this this whole project, which is this one, Take One Candle, and the book that Noelle um, so kindly mentioned, Amelia Nightingales, it's, it's three books, and I spent 15 years working on it, and it really it came from just some images. And uh, one of them, I used to ride the bus to work um, down Figueroa, in LA. Um, I, I went to USC and I used to uh, ride the bus to go downtown. And I rode the bus with the most beautiful woman in the world. I mean, she was really, really, really beautiful. She had just these hammered gold skin and, and beautiful hair and everybody tortured her on the bus. All the men were constantly trying to talk to her and give her their number and, you know, oh baby, if, if you just give me a chance. There's this, this picture I have still right now of her face you know, in my head. And, and I always thought she was the saddest woman in the world. So that, that I rode the bus with her all the time. And then also 15 years ago, uh, this young woman was found dead in a shopping cart. Her body was put in a shopping cart and it was left on the corner of Martin Luther King and Michael Street in Riverside's east side. And that's my father-in-law's street. And I, I remember being so obsessed with this notion of that somebody had actually put her body in a shopping cart, because first of all, it seems so undignified. But secondly, her mother, when she was interviewed for the Riverside paper, said, no one's going to care. No one's ever going to find out who killed her. She's just a, a pregnant 17-year-old black girl. The police are never going to care. And I thought, that's a terrible way to feel. And that, that was true. Like, nobody ever really did care. And I found out who killed her, and my brother-in-law 
knew who killed the person who killed her. And it was this whole strange secret kind of retribution thing. Then I realized there's this whole other life. Do you know what I mean? That we had that no one ever writes about. But mostly I couldn't get the girl, the sort of the image of the girl. So it doesn't make any sense to make that girl somebody else, but it kind of did because it bothered me so much. And sometimes I think that's what we're working out. And the last thing, because I'm going to read um, something that I've never uh, read before. It was something I wrote for this book. The last thing was that when I, when I started writing this, um, actually Denise Hamilton was a huge help because I was working on a story for her for Los Angeles Noir. And I couldn't figure out, I don't know Los Angeles as well as many of you do. And I couldn't figure out why my character lived in this neighborhood. And she went to Skylight and she talks about it. And she lived on Nala Vista Street, which is around the corner because I think that's a beautiful street. And then I realized it's that she, she left Riverside. You know, she left Rio Seco and she couldn't stand it because of her beautiful friend, Glorette, whom she thought was an idiot. And the one who's killed. The last part is that 15 years ago, Delphine the vacuum killer, as she can otherwise be known. Uh, Delphine was in kindergarten. And there was a fellow kindergartner um, there with her who uh, was named Dion. And I used to be in charge of Dion when I volunteered on Mondays, my day off. I wasn't good at cutting. I cannot cut a straight line. I try, and it just hurts. I'm not good at drawing, not good at any of that, but I'm good at reading to kids and having them sit on my lap. I know, you guys would totally be renting me if I weren't up here. But Dion had a hard life. I mean, I could tell. His hair was always like really dusty and uncombed, and his, his shoes were really big, like way too big for his feet. They were, not, they were clearly not his shoes. And one day, we were out on the playground, and Dion was doing this. And uh, I've said this last week, um, too, for the, uh, you know, the first or second time. And what do you do when someone's you know, grabbing at their fly and they're five? You say, do you have to go to the bathroom, right? If you have any sense, you do. And he said, no. And he turned away, really. He was, he was very, you know. And I said, are you OK? And he said, yeah. And then he lifted up his shirt when he thought I wasn't looking. And he had all these burns on his stomach, on his lower stomach. And so I almost threw up. Um, just even, I mean, I can still see it in my mind, how upset I was. And so I turned to take him into, I said, we're going to have to go to the nurse's office. You got to get some cream for that ouchie. And he just freaked out. You know, he was like, no, no, nothing happened. I spilled soup. I spilled soup. And he sort of said it in that way that someone had told him to say, I spilled soup. And I said, you, you know, we got to go in to the nurse's office. We're just going to get some cream for the ouchie. So I, I turned to take him in, and, and Delphine comes running up with her friends, and they're like, why does Dion get to go in? And I said, He's, he has an ouchie, and we're going to get some, some cream for it. And they're like, oh, OK. And then they run off. So in the nurse's office, she actually um, looked at it. I could see by her face that she knew it wasn't soup. And she unbuttoned his pants, and there were more burns lower down. And it was not soup, because they were round and pink. And if you have ever seen someone burn by a cigarette, you know how that looks. And unfortunately, I had seen that before, and I knew that's what had happened. You see how horrible it is to hear this. I, you know, I, I couldn't do anything. She, she sort of took him by his shoulders and turned him away, and she said to me, you can go now. And I did. I went back out to the playground, and then I went to work. And I couldn't believe it. I mean, this is a kid in serious trouble. Elizabeth, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's, you, what can you do? Um, Elizabeth works with kids like this all the time. So I couldn't get him out of my mind. I saw him every day in the playground. I saw him every day in the parking lot. So I met his grandfather, and I met his mother, 
And of course, everyone said it was spilled soup. And even though Child Protective Services was called, nothing happened. So at Thanksgiving, I went to take his mom, because I found out she only lived three blocks from me. And I mean, she looked vaguely familiar. And all of this, I hope I'm not boring you, but all of this is kind of what went into my mind during these 15 years. We probably went to school together. We probably saw each other at dances. We probably saw each other at football games. I don't think she went to my high school because we, everybody, you know. But she definitely went to school when I did. She had five kids, I had three. And when I said to her, I felt really bad seeing you know, Dion get hurt like that. And she said, I don't know how that happened. And she gave me this really sort of apologetic, vague, beautiful smile. And I've seen that smile so many times on, on the faces of my own friends, most of whom are not here anymore. So I, I think I felt guilty for even being alive, for being a good mom, but I also felt really guilty about Dion. I took a frozen turkey to her. She looked at me like I was crazy. And I was in her apartment, and there were these two guys in the apartment, and they were just looking at Delphine and me. You guys could sit up here, Maria, Lydia, there's room. Um, the two guys in the apartment were really scary. And again, this is three blocks from my house. After Thanksgiving, Dion never came back to school. I've never seen him again. And I felt terrible. I mean, that's what we do. We feel terrible, right? And the only thing I knew how to do was to, to write about him. So for 15 years, I've been trying to write about this beautiful woman in a shopping cart and her son, who has, has uh, been hurt by somebody in her apartment. Now, that doesn't mean I'm writing nonfiction about it, because that's not the way fiction's brain works a lot of times. It takes 15 years. In order to do that, to figure out what Glorette was about, the beautiful woman in the shopping cart, why her mom was who she was, I had to go back to slavery, and so I wrote A Million Nightingales. So I started with this that I'm going to read you. This is the first thing I wrote 15 years ago, and then I had to go all the way back to Louisiana to figure out what was going on with the slave ancestors, the beautiful women in Louisiana. Then I tried to come back to this. Couldn't do it yet. It was still breaking my heart. So I wrote Take One Candlelight a Room. In other words, efficiency is not really my like model here. <laughs> if you want someone efficient, you better talk to one of those mystery writers because they're really good at that. <laughs> During all this time, of course, I'm wandering around thinking about how to tell the story. And for those of you who write short stories, how many people in here write short stories? Anybody? I think the short story form is very beautiful still. And I love the way that you can come about something larger through short stories. So I started out writing short stories because I was so scared of writing about this. And this was the very beginning of the first um, short story that, that I wrote um, 15 years ago, which it was Victor's point of view. Then I wrote about Glorette for uh, the Cocaine Chronicles for Jervie Trivelon. I wrote about the death of Glorette. Still had no idea who had killed Glorette. And then Steve Erickson, who's also very kind and, and edits Black Clock, he asked me to write a story, and I ended up writing a story about the guy who finds Glorette's body. And then suddenly I realized that I, I couldn't write about Glorette herself or Victor yet, but I was writing about all the people that were so sad when she died. And it wasn't until this month when the book came out and I started looking at it, you know, and thinking, like, why did I do this for 15 years? Like, what, what was that about? Because I felt really bad for that mom who thought nobody would care if her daughter was killed. And so it must have been that in the back of my mind. Couldn't figure it out until this morning when I was not vacuuming, though. So, yes. So I'm going to read you this, this, little, um, this little piece about, about Victor. And there's some yucky stuff in here, not the burning stuff. I didn't write. Of course, I couldn't write about that in the way. But I realized at the end that Victor still loved his mother. So I'm going to read you some sections from the last chapter that I wrote. 
He's in high school during this time. This is two, 2000. Um, the next book, Take One Candle Out of Room, is five years after this, and he's in trouble, and he's fleeing, and he's been shot. But this, in this part, he's a senior. They were all of the opinion that what Victor had missed was a crib and then a bed. A bed with a comforter featuring, featuring transformers or ninja turtles. Wait, mutant ninja turtles. Vital distinction for somebody. Bedspread, comforter, quilt. Wait, how did the middle one comfort you more than the others? What was that about? Yeah, he had missed Flintstones vitamins, his aunt said. said. He had to look up Flintstones on the school computer. Flint was a stone, so the word seemed pointless, but Fred was kind of funny. The teachers used to be in conference with his mother at the high school, her sitting all legs in the desk chair, staring out the window at whatever trees grew in the elementary school courtyard. His aunts in the kitchen of Uncle Enrique's house in the orange groves out in Surratt. The cops in the fluorescent room when they'd taken him to jail after the idiot had shot up the apartment in the Riviera. But his mom knew trees. She showed him how to find bees in the pepper tree trunks, spiders in the eucalyptus bark, shedding long, flat sheaves. In the fourth grade, they studied California Indians, and Victor found a perfect piece of bark for his project. She took him to the riverbed, where a paddle-shaped cactus grew everywhere, and on the smooth green skin were cottony white insects. Their blood was magenta, a color Victor had never seen, even among her eyeshadows and her nail polishes. His mother showed him how to paint the designs on the bark in bug blood. She used to keep the bark picture in her trunk. The lock had been busted over and over when everybody broke into everything in their apartment. But they threw the bark aside looking for money or rock cocaine or jewelry. One night somebody got pissed when he couldn't find anything and he broke the bark in half and threw it on the floor. So his mother glued it together and she wrapped magenta ribbon from Rite Aid around each end, and she hung it on the wall. Nobody would care about it if it was on the wall. And he saw her staring at it sometimes when she lay on the couch, when she was high. At each apartment, she hung it on the wall near the door. The bug was cochineal, C-O-C-H-I-N-E-A-L, an S-A-T word, a effing S-A-T word. He's obsessed with the SATs. It wasn't that big a deal. Like, she had sex with men who weren't his father. His father had disappeared before he was born. So she couldn't, I mean, she couldn't have sex with him anymore because he was gone. His name was Sear Dakar. He was some musician from Detroit. Other moms had sex with their husbands, whom they hated, according to Beer and Amitav, both of whom told Victor that their parents had arranged marriages back in India before they came to California. Amitav's mother had only hung out with his father for three hours before they got married. Other moms also had sex with other women's husbands, according to all three Logans who actually spoke to Victor after AP art history class. Or they had sex with guys they met at bars downtown, especially at Marlowe's Place and Greensleeves and SoCal Brewing Company. The guys bought them drinks and dinner. His mom got two or three rocks. Morsels, kernels, nuggets, pebbles, not shards, that would be sharp and splintery, and not crystals. That would be glittery and multifaceted. Grains, that was too minuscule. Decomposed granite was grainy. SAT class, SAT class, three kinds of rock. There's igneous, sedimentary, and... Because you guys already took your SAT. Because <laughs> that's in SAT class right now. On Fridays, she had sex only with Chess, who was annoying as hell. 
He was an old school brother with bow legs who had played three years of college ball at UCLA and had bragged about his nickname, which apparently came from his ability to move other players around the court with some skill back then. Now he did that at the YMCA. So Victor rolled his eyes and left whenever Chess showed up promptly at 11 o'clock on Fridays with food and Yao Rock, even though he acted like he wasn't that guy. He gave Victor's mother $100 to keep her company all night and to make him breakfast in the morning. And he thought it was all that. But she had the system down until that night when someone killed her. He was 17. The system that she had down was that she left ramen, orange juice, and she bought Tropicana, not that Sunny Delight crap, and pistachios in the kitchen, the staples of food. And most nights she brought home the scheduled items from El Ojo de Agua. He said to her that night, a shrimp burrito from the eye. But Memphis, Memphis was the only name he had for the man when he was 10, the cigarettes. Memphis lit a new one for each time. And when he was done, he left them on the floor of the bedroom. The shrimp burrito had beans, rice, cabbage, tomatoes, sauce, and fried shrimp. It was $3.99, the size of a small log, a dusty white log, and Victor ate one every Tuesday. Wednesday was 99-cent fish tacos, and Thursday was tamales. But Friday was chess, and on Saturday she was gone until dawn. Sunday she slept, and he ate whatever his grandfather brought from the orange groves. Gumbo, beans and rice, ham, and always oranges. She had her part down as well as she could, and Victor had his part down cold. He had a perfect 4.0. He was registered for the May 6th, 2000 SAT, the last one of the year. He was a senior. Everybody else was juniors, but he could finish his college apps late, and his teacher would help him. And it really must have pissed off those other moms when their kids mentioned him. There's like this black dude with like weird hair, and he's like really light, so he's like not even really black, and his mom is like a crack hoe. I mean, that's just what everybody says, okay? She is. And he gets like 97 or 98 on everything. Like he never gets lower, for reals. Victor liked imitating them. He had the second highest grade in the class in AP European history, the second highest in AP US history, and the third highest in AP art history. No one could beat Logan Moss. I mean, he'd be number one in the senior class even if he did smoke weed every day. Even if he told Victor one night that his dad put him in the closet when he was 12 because he brought home a B minus, and his dad was a pastor and left to say, spare the rod, spoil the child. No one was getting number one away from Logan Moss, and no one was getting number two away from Amitav Kumar, even though he blazed out with Logan every day and left a joke that his mom was seriously pissed that he was the only number two Indian at any high school in the entire state. <laughs> Probably all the other states, too. <laughs> the four other Logans, secondary Logans who hung out with the two Hunters, the Piper, and the two Dakotas, hated him. Two girl Logans, two boy Logans. <laughs> The girl Logan would always ask him after class, real casual, like, so what'd you get on the test? What I always get. Victor loved saying that. He didn't even have to give her the percentage. It was 97 or 98, because Mrs. Mumbles had to take off two or three points for everyone. She had to make up some crap about one word being awkward, or you forgot a comma or a space. That was her thing. But he loved her. He loved Mrs. Mumbles, Mrs. Mumford. 
She'd been at the high school for so long, she had three generations of Logan and Hunter and Piper. She had their parents named Ted and Betty in the 60s, and their parents named Horace and Eleanor in the 30s. He had seen their pictures in the hallway. Mrs. Mumbles didn't buy into any of the hype. She never looked any of them in the face. She didn't look at Glorette. She stared at some spot in the room and mumbled about funeral art of India and Impressionists and Cubanism. I'm sorry, Cubism. She didn't give a crap that Victor's mother, who came to open house because he told her it was the last time she could ever do that, sat in the back like the most beautiful zombie statue in the history of the world. He knew his mother was luminous. In the winter, the nights cold and crappy, her skin got dulled like the gold leaf frame of a painting if soot and haze had laid years of patina on it. But then she would sleep for two days. And when the sun came out, they'd go out to the orange groves. They would eat gumbo and oranges, see the grandparents. She'd take a long shower and put almond oil in her hair. And she would be gilt again. And the other moms at open house hated the way she gazed bemusedly at their fleece vests and mom jeans for two seconds before dismissing them and staring at the paintings on the classroom walls. Victor's plan was to get number three scores on the SAT. Logan had taken it twice, Amatov three times. Logan got a 1500. Okay, remember, this is the year 2000. Okay, <laughs> 1500 is a perfect score. Just remember that. Logan got a 1500, a perfect score, and Amatov a 1490 in October. But Victor hadn't had any money to register in October. And in November, his mom got pneumonia after a cold windstorm when she stood in the alley waiting too long for some guys. His aunt helped him one weekend with vocabulary words. He chanted to himself all day and most of the night, luciferous, loquacious, lucid, lucent. He listened to classical KUSC just to hear those words, adagio, arpeggio, adelante. One program featured the high school students who won national competitions in piano or violin or cello. In the interviews, they sounded like who Amitav's mom wished he was. He listened to NPR every day looked up the SAT word of the day in school library and read the dictionary because his mother, she finally got it as she stole a pocket dictionary from Rite Aid for him. She never stole ramen or orange juice or nail polish or lotion from the Rite Aid, but she said that same dictionary had been sitting in the same revolving rack for over a year. She said she knew that because she folded down one page at the word poinsettia and it was still there. Her favorite song was poinciana. That word wasn't in the dictionary. She said if no one was going to use it and it was $12.99, it was fate. And she could put it back when he was done if he didn't mess up the pages. So he was ready for the SAT. But that Friday night, May 5th, some idiot came up to the apartment and won a Glorette. Chess was already there. The idiot was from L.A. He had green eyes and big heavy cheeks, like two burlap bags hanging around his nose. He had dookie braids like you saw in little girls, so he thought he was a hardcore gangster, which Victor never understood. He shot five rounds from his Glock and called it a night. But when the cops came, they cuffed his mother and they heard him. They busted down the bedroom door and took Victor, even though he'd been in bed with his headphones on the whole time and he'd been singing. And the gunfire to him had sounded like the crack of palm fronds falling in the wind and hitting the concrete balcony. So on a random night in August, somebody had killed his mother and put her, shopping, her, her body in a shopping cart behind El Ojo de Agua, the eye of the water, where the shrimp burritos were from. I'll read you one more little paragraph. 
you're not bored. I can't see you at all because I have my glasses off. If you're bored, I won't be able to tell. That's why I take them off. When he was little, she couldn't leave him alone forever at night. Her friend Sishia would walk the alley for a few hours and then she'd come and watch TV and his mother would come back, would, would go walk and Sissia would come back. Sissia had a face like a black orange with pinprick scars and her fingernails were long and painted. She and his mother had been partners in that alley by the Launderland for all these years. His futon was always in the only bedroom in each apartment. They moved every three months. That's how long it took for someone to evict you. It was always on the other side of the wall where the TV stood if they had one, if nobody had stolen it. And he could hear the chunk when the channels changed. Sometimes his mother had to bring someone home. He put pillows over his head, but his ears had those canals that went into his brain. He had seen a movie about the human body at school. That Christmas, he asked his uncles, Reynaldo and Lafayette, for headphones. Uncle Renato said, oh, little man, want to hear some sounds, huh? You think Santa coming down the chimney with some music? Victor just looked at him. They bought him a Walkman. He hid it inside his shirt while he slept. He put his books under the covers with him, and he kept his shoes on so that no one could steal them. When he was 11, she left him home alone for a little longer. She went out at 11 at night and came home at 4 in the morning. He never wore the headphones while she was gone, in case somebody broke in. Only one time, though. Once, around Christmas then too, because someone had put winking lights around the palm tree trunks in the courtyard, and some dude jimmied open the front door, splintered the cheap frame. The lights had stopped blinking, and the voice said, man, ain't nothing worth nothing in here, and there were footsteps into the room. Victor moved quickly from the futon to the closet. He had practiced this a hundred times, stacking three boxes under his mother's few hung-up clothes. He lifted himself to the shelf, above the clothes, and he lay covered with an old sheet that he had left there. He heard the man's breath in the closet doorway. He heard the soft kicking of his futon. And then the footsteps went back outside, and the cold air came inside until she returned. I'm not going to read you about the burn, so don't worry. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to tell you one last little thing. Sorry, it's at the very end. I thought I would read for the first time. This is how I ended the book. After all these 15 years of writing about it, I couldn't figure out how to end the book. It was killing me. So I kept having to drive to an orange grove in my car and write by hand because my house was full of children. Well, they weren't kids. Children would not be so bad, by the way. You guys are like, this is such a hard time. <laughs> Wait till they're 20 and they bring 10 friends over from college and they'd be like, we don't have a curfew. We don't even live here. And I'm like, but why have you been here for three days then? Like, you're here and you're eating all my food and breaking my vacuum. But we don't live here. So it's like, what are you doing? We don't have a curfew. Why'd you lock the door? We came in at four. <laughs> Just wait. Nap time will seem so much better. So I wrote this in my car, I say, one more time, in the middle of an orange grove. Uh, it was last August, and I was working on the end, and I was stuck. And I wrote part of it, and it was so hot in this orange grove. And I thought, well, that's okay, because this takes place in August when Glorette's body is found. But I still couldn't come to the very end until it was actually winter. And then I realized that even though I just read you all this scary stuff, that Victor loves his mother. Of course he does. 
all my years of growing up with foster brothers and sisters, all of us who know kids, you still love your mother. You love your mother even if she is Glorette. So I wrote this part. I had my mother. He was thinking. I had my mother until last year. My grandfather was seven when the Mississippi River flood took his mother. But I had my mother until last year. The palm tree sparkler, better than fireworks. She used to say to him, you could have it every month, baby. Just look, every month. But winter is the best because the moon is all clean. The winter moon, like rain, washed it. And you know what? The palm fronds are clean then, too, because it's been raining. Everything is not so dusty. She used to say to him, every moon got a name. That old lady down in Louisiana, she told me, it's a hunter moon, a harvest moon. Moon pulls all that water in everywhere, and people don't even remember that. You always got a moon right here, and you always got a palm tree, baby. Can't nobody ever change that. He'd be sitting on her lap on some balcony, whatever apartment it was. The Riviera? Yeah, this is the Riviera. You got a Riviera in France, but you got a Riviera right here, Victor. She put her fingers like visors over his eyes to block out the apartment lights, and all he saw was the courtyard palm tree, the full moon behind it, and the fronds tossing in the wind, their fringes throwing off silver fire. Thank you. Do you have any questions for the author? I'm happy to answer questions because I'm always like, oh, I don't know what they want to know. I read a scary part and I've never read it out loud. Yes, <laughs> Marissa. Are this, this I think I am. I feel really sad. I, I do. I, if the lady that whispered about the moon when she said the old lady down in Louisiana, that's when that's you know, when that's granddaughter and, and they still live there and take one candle and then Hurricane Katrina comes and so it's like I was writing about Louisiana and California and everywhere in between but the heart of it was still that palm tree and like this, this balcony in this place and so I feel really sad. I feel very sad. Um, I mean, it's not like I, I... It's not that I never think about those characters either. I think about them all the time. I just, I don't... I think that now I wrote about sort of that one thing, Glorette and and the and 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 Victor, and I think Victor's going to be okay. And you don't like it's weird because I'm reading that to you, and he's a senior in high school. And then take one candle; it's five years later, and he's in danger again. But then he has. It's always the uncles, you know, the uncles and the grandpas, and that's how it is at my house. It's always, you know, it's going to be your uncles or your dad, and that's who my girls are always going to call. And they're like, everyone thinks Uncle Carnell because he's the smallest one, you know, but he's the scariest one. He probably who'd kill him. Yeah, no, maybe Uncle Derek would kill somebody. And I'm just like, what are you guys doing? We're just planning. And I'm just like, okay. Glad you have it all worked out. They're like, well, it depends on who it is. And I'm just like, okay. just. But I think I'm done writing about them. I, I, I don't know what to write about yet, though. I'm working on some more short stories, but they don't have the same people in them, so I feel really sad and melancholy. I mean, I, I look happy. <laughs> I want to write. I want to write um, some more short stories, but I don't think those people will show up over and over again. Alfonso has showed up in the last two books, and he's like this knucklehead kid, and I miss him a lot too. But any more questions? Oh, there's a shout out for you in the book. 
<laughs> it's a guy who, play, who, who, who restores old cars, classic cars, Michael Jaime Becerra. And they're going to deliver a car to him. His name is Jaime Becerra. He wants a 64 Impala with candy flake paint. Anyway, you're in there. Um, so you're, you're working, in, you're writing about the scene in Riverside that was haunting to you, but you kind of went away really far geographically and really far in terms of time. Uh, at the beginning of the project, can you talk about how you did that? Oh, that's a good. That's a good question. That was still the mother thing. I was trying to figure out why my mom is so mean to me. And I was talking to my friend Lori about this. My mom doesn't want to be mean to me, but she has to be mean to me because if she were nice to me, then I would be a failure. And like it's a direct, it's a mathematical equation to her, like seriously. And then I realized how many other of my friends had grown up, especially on Riverside's east side. And and our parents were so hard on us because they figured that was the only way we could survive. And so then I heard this amazing story from someone from the Philippines, a neighbor of mine. And she said, in the Philippines, people are, moms are so superstitious. And you guys can tell me if I'm wrong, but Maria told me this story. She also told me, though, that her village was inhabited by a woman who turned into a black dog every night. And she was kidnapped once by aliens and kept in a forest for two weeks. But she said that happens all the time in the Philippines. <laughs> so anyway, we were sitting on my porch and we were eating chicken adobo and I gave her some eggs from my chickens because that's what she liked. And she said, one time the aliens took me to the forest for two weeks and then when I came back I was a different person. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Maria told me that there's a superstition in the Philippines that there are evil spirits looking down upon your children all the time. And if the, you love those children and you're constantly walking around like, oh, my daughter, Glorette, who's so beautiful, look how much she rocks, that they will punish you and they will take that child from you. And so you name your kid something like Ugly Face or Big Head. And you act like you don't even like this kid. You're just like, whatever, go eat some dirt. And that way you're safe. So I was putting all these things together and I was thinking that during slave times, these are stories that I actually had heard from, you know, Dwayne's great, great, great grandma. If you loved your child that much, and your child was going to be sold away from you, what would that do to you over and over again? So, I mean, as a defense mechanism, a lot of people were like, I'm, I love this child, but I'm not going to show everybody that I love this child because then they'll be singled out. So that's why I couldn't figure out with these five women, Glorette, her, and all of her cousins that lived in the orange groves, their moms were so hard on them, you know, so mean to them. It's because they were afraid if they loved them too much, they had inherited that like genetically from slavery. Like, I, I'm not going to love you that much. I'm going to just... So that's why I ended up doing that. Because Glorette and Fantine were really mad at their moms. And I was like, what's going on here? Why are they so angry with their moms? And then I wrote about a story about the mom in here. They bring Glorette back to the house to bury her. They don't take her to the mortuary. And that's a whole other story. But the mom of Fantine is the one who has to... And she's just like... It was so hard for us. How could we be nice to these girls, in a way? So that's what happened. I ended up going all the way to Louisiana. But there's also... The burns happen in this book when Victor refuses to smile for this guy. He just sees like, I'm not going to smile. And the guy punishes him after his mom has finally fallen asleep. And that's how he's punished, because he refuses to smile. And it wasn't until I wrote that scene, which is very, again, it was toward the very end, that there's a character in A Million Nightingales who smiles all the time. And he's a slave, and he just smiles at everybody like, whatever. And he smiles and smiles and smiles, and they tell him to stop smiling, and he won't, so they kill him. And then I didn't even realize that till last month, and I was just like, wow. I was trying to write about these young black kids for which there seems to be no right way to make your face. You know, why your face look like that? 
there's really like, what's my choice? I can smile or not smile, but neither one seems to work. So I think that's why I went all the way back to Louisiana. Sorry, you guys are like, every question makes it sadder and sadder. Good question. Um, when did you know it was three books? Or when did it become three books? That deadly time when I realized that I wasn't going to make any headway? I don't know. I started that. I wrote that scene, you know, that I read to you guys. And then I was just like, who's this guy in Memphis? Like, what's his deal? Or as Gaylor always says, what's his issue? And I was just like, why is he such a terrible person? And then I wrote about Glorette and... I had no idea. A Million Nightingales took like five years. Then Take One Candle took five years. I, I don't know. I don't know when I figured it out. I think it was after a few of the short stories started becoming put together and either I was too scared to write you know, this book or again, like I kept thinking what's going on with the parents. There was definitely some mother stuff because I mean my kids were little at that time. I have three daughters and one, one thing I have to say is I have these three beautiful daughters and they're really beautiful. And I mean, I'm completely anonymous looking, which is why, you know, it's easy to be a writer. But my girls, for Delphine's 21st birthday, I was just telling Marissa, we went to the Getty Villa. And we walked around, and then they wanted to go to this restaurant in Hollywood called Delphine. Now that, the whole point was to take pictures of Delphine in front of Delphine. Of course, I had to pay for everything. It's like, wow, just couldn't we just have like gotten a, a napkin or something and held it up beside you? Because Delphine was expensive. It's in the W Hotel. And Mr. Sims is a big man. He eats a lot of food. So anyway, my ex-husband came. The three girls got really dressed up. That was a big deal for him because he hangs out at the house, but he hadn't seen them all dressed up. 23, 21, and 17. And they, they were really dressed up. They put on makeup and heels, and they were walking up Hollywood Boulevard, and we were behind them. And he was like, I can't do this. And I was like, what is wrong with you? He's like, look at them. Look at that dude looking at them. And I'm like, don't you dare take five more steps and say, that's my child. Don't you do it. Don't you do it. And he's like, I need to take my blood pressure medication. And I'm like, did you bring it? Where is it? And he's like, it's in the car. It's in the car. And I'm like, what are you doing? You can't be having a heart attack. How embarrassing will that be for the girls? And he's just like, I don't like this. I don't like this. I said, so you think they don't look like this when you're not around? He's like, shut up. Shut up. I said, they look worse when you're not around. Like, they go to USC. They go to parties. It's like, you know, and that, that was it. I was just like, how hard must it be for him? <laughs> it's terrible. It's really terrible. He will call me at 1 o'clock in the morning and say, is Delphine home? I'm like, she lives in LA. I don't know if she's home. I said, where did she go tonight? I'm like, go see USC. She's like, well, call her right now. I was like, it's 1 o'clock in the morning. You call her. She won't answer it if I call. I'm like, of course she won't. <laughs> you're insane. <laughs> you're, un you're crazy. <laughs> Part of the whole beauty thing, I think, I was so terrified looking at those three girls and then trying to write about Glorette. It was, it was bad. Delphine is that beautiful, like she's driving down the road in her red car with her sister, Rosette, who's also beautiful, but thinks she's not as beautiful. And guys are making paper airplanes with their phone numbers and throwing them into Delphine's open window, like on the way down the freeway. And of course, Rosette's like, I'm so ugly. No one's doing that. I'm like, maybe the number was for you. No, it was for Delphine. Only Delphine. I'm like, did you ask the guy? Probably not, because you guys were like going 70. I could tell by the way he was looking at the car. <laughs> like, So yes, the beauty thing was a big problem. And it was easier for me to not think about the beauty thing and to think about the men, and then I'd go back and forth. I have no idea when it happened. <laughs> Other questions? You guys are like, wait, who's this large ex-husband? Just, uh, well, yeah. I'll ask the final question. Your dedication was really interesting. Yeah. To my city, my hometown, everyone who left and everyone who stayed. 
Yeah, there's this whole thing I didn't want to bore you guys with, but I, uh, I realized during during the second book that, and I would go around and whether I was talking to like high school audiences or some of my graduate students know I've done this before too, depending on what audience I was with, I would ask the same question, which I, how many of you live within an hour of where you were born? I mean within an hour. Yeah, I mean I know Michael Jaime lives within it. So seriously, raise your hands pretty high. You live within an hour of where you were born, right? Yeah, you, and how many of you live more than an hour away? And see, it just totally depends on, if it's 18-year-olds, you know, like I went to La Sierra High School and I spoke to 350 freshmen at La Sierra High School. Almost all Asian American or um, Central American or Mexican American. And of course, 100% of them lived within an hour of where they were born. So then I asked them the follow-up. How many of you want to live more than an hour from where you were born, you know, in five years? You know what you'd be stunned to know? Maybe 20% raised their hands. They just want to stay home, right? And that's because it's Riverside County. And so I came up with this people who leave and people who stay, probably to make myself feel better because I live, you know, where I was born. So I just wanted to know that there were other losers out there. <laughs> and there are. <laughs> and then again, though, I was speaking to a group of 600 women in Orange County um, in, in March. And 90% of them lived more than an hour of where they were born because they were all in their 50s or 60s or 70s and it was Orange County. So it was of course the time that everybody was settling Orange County and they'd all come from Wisconsin and Minnesota and New York City. That was fascinating too and we got to have this discussion. So I, I didn't want to have that whole, I'm going to thank everyone who ever helped me write because I, I, a lot of you in the audience help me write just, and you keep me company and, and you're a great person to call and to talk to about writing. But I felt like people still make fun of Riverside. They still do. In fact, what was I watching? I was watching Law and Order SVU last night, which was a big mistake. Anyway, they were like, this, you know, this dirtbag's Got, got arrested out in Southern California at some Indian casino. And of course, what's the guy's name? Elliot. Elliot's like, well, there's nothing out there but scorpions and, you know, bad people. And I was just like, he's talking about an Indian casino. Of course. And he's like, yeah, it was somewhere where they played Indian bingo. And I'm like, Riverside County. That's great. And he said, nothing good ever happens out there. <laughs> so I thought I would sort of say that this is to my hometown. Although I don't name it, of course. <laughs> anyway, but you're right. That's... I didn't want to, also I got in trouble last time because the first, A Million Nightingales I dedicated to all the women in my family, especially my mother-in-law who, who died when I was pregnant with Rosette 17 years ago and I miss her every single day. I think about her all the time and all that she taught me. So I had that book dedicated to all the women but then Take One Candle is dedicated to all the men and there are three nephews that I had to put in there and my kids were so mad at me because they're like, no, they don't deserve to be in here. And there's this big fight over listing all the men, that there were too many men. So this time I thought I'd keep it simple. No one can get mad at me now. Thank you, very much. Thank you guys for coming. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.